Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome to the latest Ogletree Deacons podcast addressing current topics in employment law. This is part one of our series discussing the alternate workforce in healthcare and the application of the Americans with Disabilities Act to non-traditional workers. Today, we're going to talk about temporary staffing, in particular nurses. We've seen a big, big rise uh, with healthcare facilities needing temporary nursing staff to come in and assist in many different ways, including vaccine administration, general hospital operations, um, many times site working side by side with the quote unquote permanent regular workforce. And this has been an ongoing trend as the vaccine for COVID-19 has rolled out. So our focus today is really to what extent a healthcare employer has an obligation to accommodate disabilities for these types of workers, and in particular, accommodate the restrictions imposed by the disability. Um, We know these workers are technically employed by the staffing agency, but under the ADA, there are some different nuances uh, in terms of who uh, the different components of the ADA may apply to. We're going to look at that today, both in terms of legal ramifications as well as the practical considerations and a recommended approach for addressing accommodation requests from these types of temporary workers. My name is Jana Baker. I'm a shareholder in the Dallas office of Ogletree Deacons and a co-chair of the healthcare practice group with the firm. I have with me today, Jim Paul, who's in our St. Louis office. Jim co-chairs our disability access practice group and works constantly on accommodation issues in the workplace. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Jana. Yeah, it's it's great to uh, do this with you. This this is a very important topic and a hot topic for sure. And, and the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is a is a strange creature in that it applies in uh, a few different contexts, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about ADA Title One that addresses what accommodations, uh, what requirements there are for an employer towards its disabled employees. And of course, Title I is enforced by the EEOC. And then Titles Two and Three of the ADA apply to entities not as employers, but as public accommodations, such as hospitals and what duties or obligations a hospital or another public accommodation uh, entity has towards its patients, family members of patients, guests, visitors, customers, all of those relationships are, or are basically guided by Titles Two and Three of the ADA. Title Two specifically for governmental units, and Title Three for uh, private uh, organizations. and And the Department of Justice enforces uh, Titles Two and Three of the ADA. So, Jana, what are you seeing as far as our hospital and healthcare clients? Uh, and, and how, specifically for COVID-19 and the pandemic, how they've changed their staffing models. 
Well, you know, I was just talking to somebody yesterday who said they had buses of temporary workers coming into the hospital setting. This was in Houston, Texas, but I think across the country, there's been a huge, huge increase in you in the need for to utilize these types of workers. In fact, many of them have offered to come back in. Some are retired nurses that want to come back and, and assist with vaccine administration. Um, and some are just, you know, again, they're getting them from the staffing agencies and they're being used in many different capacities. And, you know, for somewhat of an unknown duration to come in and essentially perform a lot of the same tasks that an ordinary, uh, regularly employed nurse on staff would perform. And so we started getting questions because, you know, the ADA is almost a daily uh, consideration in healthcare and for many employers. Um, there's constantly requests for different types of accommodation, whether it's a reassignment, whether it's somebody who doesn't want to get the vaccine, somebody that wants to bring a service animal onto the property. Um, there's all different types of accommodation that arise and hospitals are having to consider patient care, safety, um, containing the spread of COVID-19, lots of different things at stake. It's interesting what the duty is to a temporary worker. You know, um, we tend to think of them as almost like an independent contractor. A lot of hospitals view them as contract workers and technically they are. But in your opinion, I mean, how do you view them when you're looking at the ADA? Because um, in many instances, my understanding is they may not be an independent contractor in every instance. Right. So, and of course, we're going through an administrative uh, administration change, right, with the Biden-Harris administration. And so we're potentially doing a 180-degree turn with regard to independent contractor test. At, at the federal level or for purposes of federal laws such as the ADA from what the Trump administration was doing. So independent contractor status, the test is kind of a moving target uh, and, and will be adjusted and is being adjusted as we speak. And so it, so is the joint employer rules uh, under the wage and hour laws or potentially under the employment uh, statutes such as the ADA. So the first step is exactly what you, uh, you know, what you, fo what you're focusing on. What is the relationship of that temp worker? Are they a true independent contractor? Are they going to potentially be considered a joint, uh, an employee of both the staffing agency and the hospital or the clinic? And how do we figure that out? Again, those tests are changing as we speak, and. Uh, assuming that the tests are going to be broader, more liberal, such that they're, it's going to be harder to establish independent contractor status and easier to establish that both employers are, are going to be considered joint employers and have obligations to those temp workers, then we can probably say that a lot of those really aren't true independent contractors or you're, we're not going to be able to establish the, the requirements for that test under the Biden-Harris administration analysis. And, and again, we're still waiting for clear guidance on that. But here's how the ADA breaks down. As I said before, there's titles one, two, and three. Title one applies to employer-employee relationship. Titles two and three deal with the relationship of a public accommodation to its patients, guests, and customers, clients, etc. Interestingly, business 
contractors, subcontractors, or independent contractors would actually not fall or potentially fall outside of the ADA entirely. There's somewhat of a gap or a black hole, so to speak, with regard to the ADA because someone who's a true uh, business contractor, subcontractor uh, with another party isn't going to have real protections under the ADA like an employee would or like a patient or a client or a guest or customer would. So if, we, if we're dealing with a true independent contractor, the ADA may not apply at all, which is good and bad. It's bad because then we don't have guidance on how we handle that. Uh, it, it's good from the sense that, uh, that the hospital or clinic may have more flexibility on how they, whether they accommodate or how they accommodate. But let's assume that it's not, at least going forward under this new administration with rules that the Department of Labor and the EEOC put in place, kind of going back to the Obama era administration, let's assume that we can't establish true independent contractor status and they're going to be considered a joint employee of the staffing agency in the hospital. Then Title I of the ADA would apply. If not, we might still want to try to accommodate under Titles II or, or Title III. But here's the interesting part, Jana. Under Title I of the ADA, that allows a very robust, interactive process to determine, one, what someone's disability or impairment is, and two, what are the options to accommodate for that? So Title I, even though you know, the, our gut reaction might be we don't want these these temp workers to be considered employees. That actually gives both the staffing agency and the hospital or clinic, the primary uh, work site uh, or facility, a lot of tools to use to go through that interactive process, right? Whereas ADA titles two and three, uh, an entity that's considered a public accommodation and has duties to patients, guests, customers, family members of patients is very, very limited in what questions they can ask and whether or not they have to accommodate. It's it's almost that we have to take at face value uh, from somebody that they have you know, a, a hearing impairment, a sight impairment, they need a service animal, they need some other type of accommodation. They can wear a mask or not wear a mask, or they need special protections for whatever their disability is. And so we can't really ask many questions other than, are you saying that you have a disability and does that, does that disability need to be accommodated and what's your accommodation? Uh, and then the person says service animal, or they say, I need an interpreter. And we have to then assume that they're telling the truth. They have a bona fide disability and they need that accommodation, right? So. Jana, well, and that's really interesting because in that instance, if you have a regular nurse on staff working in a department next to a temporary nurse who's come in for like, say, 90 days, if, if we were to apply that Title III public accommodation analysis, that, that temporary worker would almost get more deference and have more leeway in insisting on certain accommodations than the employed nurse. So that's a really interesting dynamic and it probably behooves the organization in most instances to apply the same standard and do the more robust accommodation review and interactive process to get a more fair and consistent result amongst these folks in the workplace. Um, 
certainly that, that's a big difference if you consider the two types of analyses that you're talking about. And if, if we assume the Biden administration will eventually, you know, tighten the reins on the joint employer analysis and that just about anybody is going to be considered in a joint employment relationship. And as we always, you know, joke in the employment field as practitioners, there's no such thing as an independent contractor, right? If we assume that, then it's, then it's sounding to me like it's not a bad idea for healthcare facilities, providers to consider going ahead and treating them as a practical matter as an employee under Title I. Is, is, do, you, do you feel like that's a reasonable result? Absolutely. And so it's, it, it's one of those things that I might have recommended or erred on the, on the side of uh, just assuming that we could be found to be a joint employer, you know, on the hospital or clinic side and going through that process. But on the other hand, you don't necessarily want to make admissions or say that, you know, just concede up front that you're a joint employer because you may not have uh, full control over that uh, temporary worker from the staffing agency. Certainly. Certainly. So, you don't want to give up all um, <laughs> right. indicia in of, of that temporary independent contractual relationships. So. Yeah. So it's a tightrope. It, it really is a balancing. And, and it's one of those things where we got to be careful not to look like we want our cake and to eat it too. And we have to be somewhat consistent. But I agree with you, Jana. You, if you have two workers working side by side and one's technically through a staffing agency and one is a regular, you know, permanent long-term em- employee, you, you're going to want to subject them to the same basic performance requirements, expectations. And if they both have uh, accommodation requests, you would presumably want or need to treat those similarly. So again, we're probably going to be forced somewhat to err on the side of treating them more like an employee than an independent contractor or a, you know, certainly they're not uh, in the same situation as a patient, a guest, a, a customer, right? So they're, they're more like an employee in nine times out of 10. Now, yeah. again, there could be, there could be this uh, third bucket that falls totally outside of the ADA, but that's dangerous and risky too. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and certainly that's not good customer service or, you know, a good relationship to have with that, uh, that temp worker or the staffing agency to say, well, we don't owe you any duty <laughs> to accommodate you, uh, assuming you need them to fill that role and you need that relationship with the staffing agency. You're going to need to work together and figure out who's responsible for what and how we're going to work together to make this work. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the practical considerations here um, for any healthcare facility that's got temporary workers and you're dealing with an outside staffing agency. Um, what's a reasonable approach in terms of divvying up responsibilities? What do we need to be looking at? What are clients need to be looking at in terms of deciding who does what? Right. Well, that, and that's a very good point. And so, so there are some of you out there that are clients or, uh, you know, contacts of ours that are on the staffing agency side and some that are on the hospital uh, healthcare provider clinic side. And for for either either party to this relationship, it, it makes the most sense and it's going to be lead to the most success for that relationship if both sides understand what 
what the relationship is. And so from a staffing agency perspective, you want to make sure that you're providing presumably temp workers that are qualified and are going to be productive and successful in whatever role you're providing uh, them uh, to the hospital or to the clinic, right? So you're going to want to understand what the job entails. You're going to want to know a job description. You're going to know what uh, the hospital is asking of you to provide so that you're you're actually giving them candidates and temp workers that fill their need and that they're going to be successful in that role, whether it's for 30 days or 90 days or six months. Uh, from the other side, from the hospital or clinic side, you're going to want to make sure that the staffing agency understands your needs and understands what you're looking for, whether it's short-term, mid-term, long-term uh, worker that you need. And what exactly they're going to be doing, you know, a lot of these healthcare roles, nurses or otherwise, are, are, are technical, professional roles. And so you're going to want to make sure they have the right skills and certifications for whatever particular department or area of the hospital they're working in. Are they working in an emergency room or the radiology department or surgery or prenatal uh, care or the NICU department? All of those things are going to need to be assessed so that you're getting a qualified temp worker. Now, in that discussion, the, the, the staffing agency hopefully knows or should know that if they are sending a worker to the hospital or clinic, to their customer, their ultimate customer, the hospital, that if there are any issues that need to be addressed, such as accommodating a disability, that that's addressed before the worker shows up on site. So, Jana, I just had, you and I were talking, just last week I had a situation where a hospital uh, you know, was receiving a temp worker from a staffing agency, and she showed up, and it, it was a nurse, showed up with a service animal. And they had no idea that this worker was going to need or be using or would want a service animal, a service dog. And it was a, a sizable dog. It wasn't a small dog. And yes, there was a true disability and a true need for the dog. But the hospital was woefully unprepared to deal with uh, the dog in that particular area of the hospital there was not enough space. There was not enough room. The worker was not going to have any place to uh, keep or have the dog and would need the dog anyway uh, by her side the whole entire shift. And that that posed immediate concerns and problems and resulted in a little bit of bad feelings between the staffing agency and the hospital because the hospital kind of assumed, but hadn't addressed it specifically, assumed that the staffing agency would have given them a heads up or told them at least that this was going to be a potential issue. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting because, you know, we all know without digging into the weeds here that the interactive process can be complicated in, in assessing whether you, you can accommodate somebody. We're looking at whether it's a reasonable accommodation, is it effective, um, does it pose a, an undue hardship on the operations of the hospital? Is there a direct threat issue? And oftentimes, you know, that's really the hospital having to make those types of determinations and evaluate how it impacts their operations, how it impacts patient care and safety, whether the job can indeed be performed in that manner. And that's really unique to the facility, and they need time to process that. So it sounds 
to me, like it would be reasonable that the parties contractually, or at least in their email communications between the agency and the facility, that they have some period of notice and then some understanding of who's going to gather the information, who's going to make the final assessment, and just good, clear communication on both sides so that they're both satisfied with the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and of course, when you know when a hospital needs a temp nurse, usually they need them yesterday, right? So there is no right. time to waste and lose. And unfortunately, uh, these interactive process discussions and exchanging of information takes days, and that's if everything goes smoothly. Yeah, uh, but yes. sometimes it takes weeks. And so, what happened in that in, in the case that I'm referring to? It, it wound up that they had to get a different temp worker, and then it led to all kinds of problems and hard feelings with the, the, the temp worker that was sent out initially. Yeah. And she had to find out, you know, another assignment. I had a similar situation come up with a sign language interpreter need. And a, a, again, the, the worker showed up and was fine initially, but then when she needed some specific orientation and training that was pretty detailed and technical... Um, she really needed uh, more explanation and needed an interpreter. And, and the hospital just, was, again, was caught off guard and wasn't prepared. Um, they, they were able to quickly provide that, but it, it caused a, a couple hour, uh, you know, even a couple hours delaying training someone can be a problem, right? As, especially in the patient care yeah. area. Yeah. And sometimes I suppose the temporary worker, they may not even know where they're going to be assigned necessarily. Until that and, day, right? Yeah, and like they perhaps they have an allergy to certain cleaning solutions. I've seen that situation, or they, you know, they have color blindness, can't read certain types of screens. You know, there's all such, sorts of situations in healthcare, um, and so it's really important to have time to process that and just have a good understanding of, of how each party is going to evaluate it. Um, Jim, anything under state law we should be thinking about? What's your take on that? Yeah, well, so, yeah, there are 50 different things to worry about state law. So each state, most states have civil rights laws, and most states' civil rights laws include uh, disability discrimination and accommodation obligations on both employers and on non-employers, you know, if they fall under whatever definition of public accommodation or a business, and, and may even expressly incorporate independent contractors. And so even under federal law, it's unclear how we treat independent contractors. It may be a situation under state law that the way that coverage is defined, that that a hospital or a clinic may have a direct obligation even to an independent contractor with regard to accommodating requests. So uh, again, we can take the approach sometimes that we don't have to deal with this. We don't have to accommodate. We want, we want the staffing agency to send somebody else. That's dangerous and risky, even under a federal standard. But if you need to check the particular state regulations and law to know for sure if you could even take that position. Uh, but you may not want to. Again, this is a customer service, potentially PR issue. And so presumably you're going to want to at least see if you can accommodate whatever needs there might be of that worker that you want and need, right, in the hospital. You, you've you already decided or you've already uh, made the plans that you need this worker for whatever reason to fill in uh, a gap or to temporarily cover for somebody else. And so you're going to want to make it work and you're not going to want to delay in that process. So 
a little bit of heads up on both sides, understanding what each other what each other's needs are so that we can make this relationship work. We can provide the temp worker from the staffing agency side. We can receive and utilize that worker from the hospital clinic side. And any kinks or issues can either be you know, done on the fly fairly easily or big ones like a service animal or an interpreter need need to be need to be planned for. Uh, so build that into the relationship to the contract that you have in place, whether you, you know, again, whichever side you're on, the staffing agency side or the hospital side, just lay that out, have a have a discussion, have a communication, put that in the contract, in in, in the relationship so that you know who's doing what. Yeah, well, that's certainly great advice. Very helpful. We will keep an eye on the joint employer standard and what Biden administration decides to do with that and the more restrictive interpretations of independent contractor. I feel like every month there's something new coming out from a different state on that issue. Um, these are great tips. Jim and I are going to wrap up now. We'll be talking in part two about a similar type of alternate worker, and that is the volunteer and the residents, the medical and nursing residents, student interns who come onto the property to do clinical rotations and are not necessarily getting paid. So we will come back next time to talk about that and what the ADA has to say about that and our duties as employers to accommodate those types of workers on, on property and how they fit into the scheme of the ADA. Thank you very much for joining us, Jim. Thank you for, for being with me today. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to that part two, more fun issues with yet another category or relationship of, uh, of worker or people in the hospitals and clinics. Good luck, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.